0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Chapter 15, The Wrong Brothers. According to Evlia Chelebi, there were two men in the 1600s who not only attempted to fly, but succeeded. I, for one, do not believe, Celebi, and I don't think you should either. The book he wrote of his explorations of the Ottoman Empire, Siataname, is riddled with hyperbole, exaggerations, and full-out fictions. What's more, his is the only account of these supposed flights, and what other possibly corroborating evidence there could be instead contradicts. And finally, like a lot of Celebi's writing, it's simply too good a story to be true. Which is why I'm telling it anyway. If Chelebe is to be believed, and he is not, of course, then the first two people to fly were brothers. But they lived 300 years before those other ones. They were named Hezaphem Ahmad and Lagari Hassan Chelebe. No relation to Eblia, Chalebi was an honorific, meaning man of God, roughly analogous to sir or gentleman. For what it's worth, there is no record of either brother's existence outside of Evlia, but we're not taking this one literally, so don't get hung up on it. Hazarfen, Evlia says, studied the flights of birds in Istanbul, and it seems safe to assume that Lagari did too, or else he studied his brother and his flights of fancy, and where they got him. Hezarfen modeled a set of wings off of the birds he had watched and tested their size, their weight, and their durability before inviting Murad IV, sultan of the Ottoman Empire, to watch him try them out. In 1623, he climbed to the top of Galata Tower, a nine-story battlement built by the Christians just half a century before the fall of Constantinople. It was the tallest structure in the city, 200 feet tall, the perfect place for Hezarfen to fly in front of the sultan, and in front of his brother, Ligari Hassan. Ligari Hassan had Hazarfen's example to improve upon. A year later, when Murad's daughter was born, he launched his own flight as a gift to the sultan. Instead of Hazarfen's bird suit, with its paltry pair of wings, Ligari's device had 14 wings. More critically, instead of a suit, it was a rocket. Stuffed with 150 pounds of gunpowder. But the real lesson he had learned from his brother was about attitude. Before his attempt, launched from the base of the palace, he shouted up to Murad, Oh, my Sultan, be blessed. I am going to talk to Jesus. Then he lit the rocket and, according to Evdia Celebi, shot high into the sky, made a gentle arc, and landed safely in the waters of the Bosphorus. If any of this actually happened, no, then Hezar Fenn's flight could be considered the more successful of the two. When he sprang from Galata Tower, he sailed out not just over the city, but over the Bosphorus as well, landing in the center of Üsküdar, on the other side of the Strait of Istanbul. Now, I'm trying not to harp on it, but golly gee, is Elia Çelebi's account unreliable? Both of these flights would have been impossible to make, for different reasons. Hazarfen's glide from the tower to Uskudar would have been two miles long from a starting altitude of just 200 feet without any favorable winds or thermals to aid him. The best-performing modern hang glider can achieve a glide ratio of 16 to 1. That is to say that for every 16 feet it travels horizontally, it falls one foot. But to accomplish the flight from Galata to Uskadar, Hezarfen's wingsuit would have needed a glide ratio of 41 to 1. The problems with Lagari's rocket are even more profound. He didn't have the materials to make a reliable rocket that wouldn't fall apart in the air, he didn't have a way to control the burn of the gunpowder, and even if he somehow did manage to get him and his rocket safely up, he definitely didn't have a way to safely get them back down again. But there's something to be said for Evlia's story as a parable instead of a history, which gets us back to the lesson Lagari Hassan might have learned about Attitude. Ligari was careful to praise the sultan and to say the flight was being undertaken on his behalf. He was only ascending the clouds to tell Jesus about Murad's greatness. And when he swam back to the palace, his first words weren't one small step for man or anything so self-centered. Oh, sultan, he told Murad, Jesus sends his regards to you. As a reward, Murad elevated him to a palace knight. Hazar found Ahmad made no such overtures to the sultan, and so his reward was different. After gliding, only for himself, Murad gave him a bag of gold coins. Then he announced to the crowd, This is a fearsome man. He can do anything he wishes. It isn't right to have such a person here. And with that, Hazerfen was banished to Algeria, where he died. No matter how much time passes, stories of flight are still Icarus stories. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler, this is the third of a four-part series investigating not so much the history of flight as the history of falling. I wanted to get it done in three, but I've found that there are just too many great stories to fit. And I'm hoping you'll find that too. So, today's episode is What Goes Up Part 3. Chapter 16, The Archbishop As he whiled away the hours and the days and the months and the years, deep within his prison confines, John Williams must have thought about many things— How he had ended up there, locked within the Tower of London, for instance. How he might escape. And, no doubt, John Williams thought about flying. The yo-yoing fortunes of John Williams do a perfect job of illustrating the instability of England during his lifetime. From one moment to the next, he might be a critical ally of the king, or else a wanton political prisoner, a leader of the English church, or a besieged Welsh exile. The first shift came when he was a young fellow and priest at Cambridge, differentiated from his peers mainly by his upbringing. Most who entered the clergy at the time were nobodies, the children of what we might now call the lower middle class. John Williams, quite conspicuously, could trace his lineage back through three noble Welsh houses, Cockwillin, Penryn, and Wynne. Yet, somewhat mysteriously, John had chosen the priesthood, or the priesthood had chosen John, or else some other roll of fortune had tossed him into the cloister. He'd taken to the life with an almost preternatural aplomb, particularly the vow of chastity. Many priests, this is going to shock you, found celibacy difficult to maintain and gave in to lust both implicitly and explicitly. But John Williams, those around him noticed, was incorruptible, totally beyond temptation. In 1610, he preached a sermon before King James, who was greatly impressed by Williams. The feeling went both ways, and soon James and John became as close as a celibate priest could be to the profoundly religious king who had the Bible translated to English and spent a good deal of his early Scottish reign burning witches. The king chose John to be his chaplain in 1617. His fortune skyrocketed over and over, and in quick succession. Charles elevated him to Dean of Westminster in 1620, and the next year to Bishop of Lincoln. By the end of 1621, he'd been named the Lord Keeper of the Great Seal, and, after Parliament impeached Francis Bacon, Lord Chancellor. Everything was coming up Williams. Unfortunately for John Williams, he wasn't the only fast-ascending and beloved friend in King James's company. George Villiers was 10 years younger than William, born in Leicestershire in 1592. His claim to nobility was a bit more frayed than Williams's, since his father was just a knight and a minor country gentleman who died when George was 15. But George Villiers had something that John Williams didn't have, and I will tell you what that thing was in a roundabout way in a little bit. As John caught James's eye giving a sermon, George did the same during a hunting trip in 1614. George Villiers was hard to miss. He was called the handsomest man in England and had charm and wiles to match. Not to mention, and this sounds like I'm making a joke, but I am not, an incredible, noteworthy body. King James was absolutely smitten by the young George Villiers. Much as his affinity quickly elevated John Williams, his adoration did the same for George. George went from royal cupbearer to a gentleman of the bedchamber, where he became famous for his dancing, then almost immediately was named the king's master of the horse, then baron of Jersey, knight of the garter, earl, marquise, and finally, in 1623, he became Duke of Buckingham. Some historians scoff at the insinuation that there was a romance between James and George, and those historians are what we technically refer to as prudes. Naive, Pollyanna-ish, probably homophobic, prudes. The piles of love letters between the king and the Duke of Buckingham are pretty hard to overlook, and sometimes bluntly unambiguous. Such as in December of 1623, when James wrote to Buckingham, My only sweet and dear child, I cannot content myself without sending you this present, praying God that I may have a joyful and comfortable meeting with you, and that we may make at this Christmas a new marriage ever to be kept hereafter. For God so loved me as I desire only to live in this world for your sake, and that I had rather live banished in any part of the earth with you than live a sorrowful widow's life without you. And so God bless you my sweet child and wife, and grant that ye may ever be a comfort to your dear dad and husband. George wrote back, saying, I naturally so love your person and adore all your other parts, which are more than ever one man had. I desire only to live in the world for your sake. I will live and die a lover of you. He signed an earlier letter, Your Obedient Son and Servant, and your humble slave and dog. That's kinky. Later, in a letter either playful or baleful or both, Buckingham wondered to the king, quote, "'Whether you loved me now better than at the time "'which I shall never forget at Farnham, "'where the bed's head could not be found "'between the master and his dog.'" Third-party sources are similarly straightforward. Bishop John Oglander wrote that he had never seen a husband so in love with his new bride as James was with George. And Sir Edward Payton describes how he saved all his affection for the Duke of Buckingham, tumbling and kissing him as a mistress. The question isn't whether the nature of James and George's relationship was sexual. It's what the nature of their sexual relationship was. King James, it's safe to say, loved Buckingham. But was that love truly reciprocated or was George playing a role? And if so, why? I mean, if the king says you're his lover, then his lover you are. But maybe there was more to it than coercion. Maybe George was also using James for all that ladder climbing, which I only say because of his relationship with James's son, Charles. Charles did not approve of his dad's relationship with Buckingham and was suspicious of Buckingham on account of it, but somehow Buckingham managed to win Charles over. King James was seeking a lasting peace with Spain, and to accomplish that, he hoped to wed Charles to Princess Maria Anna. When Charles went to Spain to negotiate the marriage, George Villiers, Duke of Buckingham, went along to help. It was a disaster, in large part because of Buckingham, who shocked the Spanish court with his lewdness and constant womanizing. Charles, on the other hand, loved said lewdness and constant womanizing, and probably got in on the action, too. After eight months of causing chaos, Charles and George returned to England empty-handed and the best of friends. John Williams was pissed. He'd been the chief proponent of the marriage, and with the larger goal of peace. He openly quarreled with Charles and Buckingham over their failure. What were they supposed to do now that the marriage was off? Let's just fuck them up, answered Buckingham. Who needs Spain? Who needs peace? How about war instead? Williams was aghast, and so was King James. But Charles thought it sounded right on, and so did the very anti-Catholic English Parliament. So war it was. James's son and James's lover began taking power as the king's health declined. When he died in March of 1625, Charles ascended, and Lord Keeper of the Great Seal John Williams was screwed. His removal from the chancellery was one of the newly crowned King Charles's first orders. In a way, it was a blessing. The rule of Charles and George was incredibly unpopular, and George Villiers, Duke of Buckingham, was assassinated just three years later, stabbed to death at a Portsmouth pub. But John Williams had more enemies than Buckingham. The Archbishop of Canterbury, William Laud, disagreed with him theologically, so he had him brought up on trumped-up charges to the court of the Star Chamber. Laud said that Williams was sympathetic to the Puritans and secretly furnishing them with state secrets. The accusation was totally spurious, but in the course of defending himself, John Williams perjured himself, as William Laud had hoped. And in 1636, Williams landed in the Tower of London. This could be where we joined the story, with John Williams in the Tower, thinking about how he got there, how to escape, and thinking, most importantly, about flying. But it doesn't have to be, because four years later, the House of Lords forced King Charles to release Bishop John Williams, just as William Laud was himself being arrested, and he too was being imprisoned in the Tower of London. They might have waved as they passed one another in the turnover. A year later, Parliament arrested Williams again, and he joined Laud once more in the Tower of London, where he had time to think. Think about how he got there. Think about escape. Think about flying. The Tower of London had been built by William the Conqueror as a means of staking his claim on the city even as he continued on his conquering path. It was first used as a prison in 1100 to confine Ranulf Flambard, the Bishop of Durham, who, much like John Williams, had held powerful sway with his monarch, King William Rufus, and who, much like John Williams, had fallen immediately into perilous disgrace as soon as the next king, Henry I, succeeded him. During his stay, Flambard was known to throw rollicking parties inside his jail cell and regularly had barrels of wine delivered into the tower. On February 3rd, 1101, he offered up most of one of these barrels to his guards. Once they passed out drunk, he retrieved from the inside of the cask a length of rope, which he secured out a window and rappelled down out of the tower to freedom. John Williams didn't have any rope but he still had the window. He could look out of it and look down from it and imagine what it might mean to jump. He thought about what would happen if he put on his longest robe, grabbed hold of its ends like he was a bat and they were his wings, and glided out of the tower. He could picture it so clearly that he didn't dare to do it. No. Instead, he waited out his time in the Tower, while civil war between King Charles and his Parliament loomed larger. He waited until he was released again, until he was named Archbishop of York, and had to flee again for Wales after William Laud was executed, and the war began in earnest. He never returned to the Tower, or to York. He escaped the war, eventually, by settling with relatives, the High House of Wynne, where he died of Quincy in 1650 just months after Parliament executed King Charles and Oliver Cromwell took control of England. From his last days at the Wynne Baritancy, he might have stopped to look around and wonder how this had been his lot. How he'd come to be Lord Keeper of the Great Seal, Lord Chancellor, Archbishop of York, twice prisoner in the Tower of London, twice exile from both sides of the First English Civil War, friend to King James enemy to King Charles, and a bishop renowned for his perfect chastity. He might have wondered why he had joined the clergy in the first place when he came from such a family, from such a noble house as the winds where he ended up. And he might have thought, again, of flying. Years earlier, he had thought of escaping the Tower of London, thought of making wings of his cloak and leaping from the window. But he knew what would happen if he did because he'd tried that before. When he was seven years old, he had his whole life ahead of him. His only job would be to marry well to the daughter of some other noble house, and then to live as a lord in the country without controversy. But he had gone off running around the walls of Conway, his home in the north of Wales. It was a perfect blustery day for a careless boy with a safe future ahead of him. He could feel the callow freedom in the wind, as it flapped through his long cloak. He grabbed up each end like they were wings and darted along the wall, feeling the wind catching around him and wishing that universal childhood wish to fly. He could do it. He knew it. He could feel the air already billowing up, grabbing him gently within his cloth wings, promising to carry him aloft. He jumped as he ran and was certain It was cradling him, letting him softly back down. He was sure. He was so sure. So he grabbed even tighter, turned, and leapt from the wall. John Williams should have been a country lord married to some country lady and clear of the machinations of London, of King James and Charles, of the Duke of Buckingham and the Archbishop of Canterbury. But after his leap, he could not marry, could not have heirs. He could only join the priesthood, where he excelled in part because of a chastity so perfect that it awed his peers and frustrated any romantic advances King James might have had for him. When the seven-year-old John Williams, with his parachute cloak, leapt from the wall of Conway, he had fallen immediately upon the sharp rocks, which fully and entirely had castrated him. The Constant is brought to you by the University of California, Irvine, Division of Continuing Education. UCI-DCE, for those in the know, has been serving the lifelong learning and skills development needs of the local, regional, and global community for over 50 years. The current economy is highly competitive, and UCI-DCE can prepare you to stand out. They offer more than 80 career-focused programs in business, leadership, tech, education, engineering, health sciences, law, finance, and more. Continuing education correlates to higher income, according to data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, opening doors to networking and better job opportunities and career progression. Courses are offered on a quarterly basis and no formal application is required to enroll. Enrollment is open to everyone. Learn from instructors who are practicing professionals with extensive, relevant industry experience, and gain practical skills that can be applied immediately on the job. Some programs can even prepare individuals to sit for industry certifications or provide continuing education credit towards recertification. Visit ce.uci.edu/learnnow to get started, or follow the link in the show notes. Once again, that's ce.uci.edu/learnnow or just click the link. If you need someone to simply jump off of a tower wearing a wingsuit, then any cobbler or peasant will do. But if you need to hire the right person for the right job, you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one professional hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. Something about Indeed that seems great to me is the virtual interview. You can schedule, message, and interview in one place without any extra downloads, plugins, or purchases. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash TheConstant. Offer valid through March 31st. Go to Indeed.com slash TheConstant to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Indeed.com slash the continent. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Chapter 17, The Inventor. The first half of the 17th century was marked by war in Europe like no one could remember. Poland and Sweden began the trend in 1600 and kept it up for the next 29 years off and on. In the middle of fighting Sweden, Poland also decided to take on Russia. While fighting Poland, Russia had a sudden civil uprising, and then Poland did too. The Swedish, who were still fighting Poland, went to war with Russia, who was also still fighting Poland, and hell, while they were at it, Sweden took on Denmark and Norway too. Meanwhile, Austria, Croatia, and Spain teamed up against England, Holland, and Venice, which eventually spilled into the big daddy of the century, the Thirty Years' War, which saw most of Europe re-choosing sides in the old Catholic v. Protestant fight, except for England, who decided to keep the fight within the family, with the English Civil War. England's culminated in the execution of King Charles and the ascendance of Oliver Cromwell. The Thirty Years' War, meanwhile, showed that European battle tactics had progressed to unspeakably inhuman levels, particularly when the Catholic League sacked Magdeburg, burning nearly every building in the city and killing 80% of its residents. In short, it was a rough time. But underneath the surface, there was something else happening. A subterranean network of philosophers, mathematicians, and scientists was forming, reaching out tendrils across the continent. While their nations warred, the great minds of Poland and France and Sweden and Florence and England and Russia and Spain were sending one another letters, building friendships and sharing knowledge. The beating heart of this cerebral organism was Marie Mersenne, the so-called post box of Europe, and the star of the Constance's second episode, Three Years of Sundays, in which I made so many embarrassing and unforgivable mistakes that I had to remake the whole story for a hundredth episode start here. Mersenne is best remembered today for the Mersenne primes of that story, and for his work on music theory. He also invented the afocal telescope, helped translate and publish the writings of Euclid and Archimedes, and made some impressively fierce takedowns of mysticism, astrology, and magic. But, it was Mersenne's more diffuse role as a pen pal that probably had the greatest impact on the world. His correspondences supported, challenged, and connected the great minds of Europe at the time. Descartes, Galileo, Pascal, Roberval, Thomas Hobbes, Robert Boyle, Constantine Huygens, and so many more. Through Mersenne, the poets, philosophers, physicists, and mathematicians of Europe developed the ideas that would lead directly to the Enlightenment while their respective countries were too blinded by bloodlust to work out much of anything. Mersenne was not a neutral conductor, though. He had interests, prejudices, hobbies, and views of his own. And since he was the conduit for so much of European thought at the time, his personality colored the thought of everyone else, sometimes in subtle ways, other times more overtly. The most conspicuous debate that Mersenne brought to the table was, to finally get close to the point, flight. Most of the intellectual elite had been convinced that human flight was impossible, but Mersenne was hopeful. Writing in his book, Questions Unheard, many people believe that the art of flying is impossible, but a man can raise himself into the air, provided he has big enough and strong enough wings, and enough industry to beat the air as is necessary. This can be achieved with certain springs, which will make the wings move and beat as fast as is required in order to fly. But it would be necessary to accustom children to the exercise and to make them start flying over water so that they would not be in any way hurt if they happened to fall. And I do not doubt that they would learn this exercise as easily as they learned to dance on a rope turn somersaults, and a thousand other kinds of dangerous jumps which are as difficult for those who have not learned to make them as is the art of flying. I say it is perhaps hardly more difficult to fly than to swim, and that as we find the art of swimming very easy when we have learned it, although we should have held it to be impossible, so we shall consider the art of flying to be very easy when we have achieved it. Because of Mersenne's fascination and hopeful optimism, and because he was the central node for nearly all scientific discourse during his lifetime, many of the great thinkers of Europe were drawn into the flight question. Many were skeptical or downright dismissive of the possibility, but nevertheless, Mersenne was the platform, and so the possibility had to be addressed. One of Mersenne's closest friends was René Descartes who was initially hostile to the idea that man could ever do anything even resembling flying. But over the course of exchange after exchange, Descartes had to give ground to Mersenne, eventually conceding that it might be possible to glide, but certainly never fly. But not everything was going Mersenne's way. In March of 1634, his friend and fellow music theorist Christophe de Villiers wrote him to explain that a clockmaker in Troyes by the name of Denise Bellari had built a set of wings powered by springs, just as Mersenne hypothesized, but that when he launched himself from a bell tower, he had fallen to his death. De Villiers had been on Mersenne's side, but after this tragedy, moved over to Descartes. Maybe gliding was possible, but flying could only lead to ruin. That position was further supported in December of 1640 when Mersenne was informed of another botched attempt at flight. It's not clear what this attempt was exactly or who made it, but Clive Hart argues pretty convincingly that it might have been the man known variously as Desson, Deson, Deson Nicholas Deson, or Dusen, who built a clockwork submarine called the Rotterdam boat, which we naturally talked about back in the Foolkiller series. The Rotterdam boat failed so spectacularly that it became a Dutch locution for failure. When a plan went to hell, it was said to have gone forth like Desan's ship. If that Desson is the same as Mersenne's, then it seems like he made such calamities a habit. Mersenne's Desson was said to have built his flying machine to fly from Brussels to St. Germain. St. Germain was where the king was, and Brussels is where Desan's best friend had fled after murdering his coachman. So Dasan would go from one to the other, through the air, and win his pal a pardon, since the king would be unable to turn down a request made through such fantastic means, the thinking went. Dasan's flying machine apparently used sails and a rudder, and it must have been fairly large, too, since he had to cut a big hole through his attic in order to raise it onto the roof. Dasan knew it would fly. He had no doubt it would fly. In fact, if anything... He was concerned it might fly too well and that the wind would carry it off into the stratosphere. So, before he mounted his device, he added two 50-pound sacks of grain to weigh it down. Then he pushed off. The machine fell immediately through the roof of a neighboring house, and Dasan broke both his legs. He also broke Mersenne's hopeful spirit. From the time he heard the story of Dasan, Mersenne's confidence in flight precipitously waned. Letters on the subject continued to flow, but with a greater and greater sense of pessimism. When Mersenne published New Observations of Physics and Math in 1647, his previously ebullient belief in soaring was gone. Instead, he concluded his section on the possibility of human flight this way, "...I fear that we may lack the muscles that could impart the necessary wings the motion necessary for flight." And that the future efforts of men made for this purpose may be vain. That same year, he became sick with pleurisy. He was treated by a barber, which at the time meant a doctor, not a stylist, but a doctor just meant somebody who bled the sick, which Mersenne's barber did, and Mersenne got sicker. His body was failing, and so were his spirits, as his lungs filled and his hope for flight emptied. And then, Just as all hope was lost, news came down through the thinkers of Europe Mersenne had collected that a real flyer had been found. Word was initially skeptical. It came from Pierre de Noyer, a Parisian scientist, diplomat, and hotelier, who in 1645 had been called up to serve as secretary to Louise Marie, the new queen of Poland. In 1647, still at court in Warsaw, de Noyer sent a letter to the mathematician Gilles Presson de Rebeval, a good friend of Descartes and Mersenne. The letter read, in part, A little while ago, there arrived here a mathematician who tells us that he has just come from Arabia, and because he comes from far away, he thought he could tell lies. The manuscript that I am sending you, together with the figure that accompanies it, will tell you the rest and make it unnecessary for me to go into further detail. The manuscript attached to Noyer's letter was ridiculous, but the figure it described was more so and more immediately understandable. It showed, well, let's go ahead and call it a flying machine, although that seems like an over-charitable stretch. What it really looked like was a giant dragon. It had the head, complete with eyes, mouth, and ears. It had four reptilian legs and a big sail-like tail. And it had wings. A lot of wings. Sure, there were the two big wings jutting out from its midsection, the way you'd picture a dragon to have, but it also had four more smaller wings protruding upwards from its back. And in the center of its back was a large dome, which would serve, its designer thought, as both cockpit and as a sort of parachute if things went awry. The Noyer, understandably, thought the whole thing was ludicrous, the result either of a con or lunacy. Nevertheless, he sent the manuscript off to Roboval on orders from Queen Louise Marie. The Queen commands me to write you to say that if this machine is a success, she wants me to come and fetch you so that you may visit her in her realm. I believe that if I did this, I would be hardly less well-rewarded than its creator. That creator was Tito Livio Berrettini, and he was neither a con man nor a lunatic. Born in Agordo, Italy, Before arriving in Warsaw, he'd been educated at Padua and worked as a traveling scholar. He somehow found his way to Egypt, where he worked with John Greaves to help produce Pyramidographia, the most accurate and detailed description of the Great Pyramid of Giza ever written to that point, and the first time its purpose, as a tomb for the pharaoh Khufu was ascertained. Later in life, he built a working water clock, a series of telescopes for the Medicis, and a mechanical calculator one of the very first ever made. He coined the word meter as a unit of measurement. He was the first person to discover spots or imperfections on Venus. He became Poland's architect royal, a position at which he directed the construction of the royal palace in Warsaw, and so on and so forth. All of that and many more very real accomplishments. But obviously, his flying dragon machine was bunk. Right? That's what Denoyer thought when he wrote to Roberval. The first time. Then the dragon scales fell from his eyes. Burattini wowed de Denoyer with his knowledge of engineering and the principles of flight. Burattini showed himself more than conversant in the latest scientific advancements of all of the other people in Mersenne's listserv, Boyle and Descartes, Pascal and Huygens, Galileo and Roberval. Denoyer was impressed. But more impressive still was his model. On January 14th, 1648, just a month and a half after he wrote Vall to sarcastically deride Burattini, Denoyer wrote another letter, this one to the travel writer and botanist Jean de Thevenot. This time, he struck a very different tone. No longer was Burattini a liar from Arabia, but instead a gentleman and mathematician who, quote, has shown the king of Poland the design and a small model of a machine for lifting a man and allowing him to fly. As far as the model goes, I can tell you that the one he presented to the king was four or five feet in length, including the tail, which by means of a cord, which he has arranged to come out of the tail, can rise into the air. And how did de know the model could rise into the air? Well, let him tell you. This model lifts a cat that is put into it and is sustained in the air for as long as the wheels are made to move by the cord. Seeing the effort produced by his model, he has no doubts about the large machine, which remains to be built. For that, he is requesting 500 crowns, not having the means to pay for it himself. I do not know whether our princes will be curious enough to want to do that. He asks eight months in which to finish it. He does not speak in any way like a charlatan, but gives evidence of being skilled in mechanics. With all that, he is poor. Now, wait a second. Let's stop and analyze this. According to Denoyer, several other eyewitnesses, Burattini built a small model of his flying dragon, just big enough to fit a cat inside, which indeed it did. Not only did it fit inside, but it flew along with the dragon in the king's court. It is a baffling revelation, because based on the many drawings and writings, there was nothing properly aerodynamic about Burattini's dragon. Even into the present, there continues to be speculation about how or what Burattini managed to achieve. The most reasonable hypothesis is that the four wings on the back of the dragon were pulled down when he pulled the cord, and that this provided enough oomph to make the device quickly hop with the cat inside of it. But then it fell right back down again with the cat inside of it. Fun afternoon for the cat. The trick is that Bertini and Desnoyers and the king and queen and their court were all convinced that the dragon could have flown if there were a way to continuously flap the wings. That would be achievable in the full-sized version, with a crew of men working them from the inside. But in the model, all they had was the cat, who was both unable and probably pretty resistant to doing so. The cord coming out of the dragon's tail could do the trick, but it couldn't be pulled again while the thing was in the air, which is why it fell. But everyone who saw it thought that it could fly, and word spread quickly through Mersenne's network, and the great thinkers of the age were suddenly convinced that flying wasn't just possible, it had been achieved. Tito Livio Borotini was never able to build his full-sized dragon. This being 17th century Poland... Months after he demonstrated the model, more war broke out, and he was drafted into the Polish army to fight the Cossacks. After the uprising was settled, Bertini returned to the royal court. He coined the term meter, he found spots on Venus, and he supervised the building of the royal palace. He built the telescopes and water clocks and a mechanical calculator. But for whatever reason, he never returned to the dragon. Still, its legend lived on and flourished, spread on the wires of Mersenne's great European postal network. And as he lay, dying of pleurisy, and the medical intervention meant misguidedly to treat it, word reached Marine Mersenne, and he learned in his final, painful days that flying was real and hope still lived. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Connect in a safe and private online environment and start communicating in under 48 hours. BetterHelp isn't a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. Send a message to your counselor anytime and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. Since their service is available for clients worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need online without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. They have licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, anger, grief, self-esteem, trauma, anxiety, and more. Anything you share is confidential. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P slash the constant. At Evernorth Health Services... Chapter 18 The Cobbler In April of 1665, the Meistersinger of Augsburg filed a lawsuit. Solomon Eidler had to be stopped, he told the city's high council. The Meistersinger was an important figure in Augsburg, essentially the head of a guild or union that officially oversaw poetry, music, and theater in the city. It was his job to make sure that new poems used the right rhymes, new songs used the right melodies and new plays used the right structures. And Solomon Eidler was wrong, wrong, wrong. Eidler was operating an unauthorized theater troupe, writing and acting in plays of his own devising, and the Meistersinger would be tied before he allowed that to continue. Solomon Eidler, the Meistersinger argued, was not an artist. He was a cobbler, a shoemaker from Kenstadt, But years ago, Solomon had gotten a bug, decided he wanted something different. The Meistersinger had sat idly by when Solomon started juggling, and had said nothing about his failed venture training horses, but Solomon's plays flew in the face of all rules of good German performance, and it was time to put him in his place. The Meistersinger had a litany of complaints about form, about meter, about style. That might have been enough to get a specific play taken down, but the Meistersinger had a larger argument for the council, that they should put a total stop, not only to this or that performance, but to Solomon Eidler's whole theatrical career. Because the Meistersinger said Solomon Eidler was crazy. And to prove it, he pointed to Eidler's most notorious scheme before the theater and the juggling and the horses, when, in 1659... He had decided to fly. We've so far heard about wings built from wood and cloth and even a wicker basket, but Solomon Idler's chosen material really stands out. He made his wings out of wrought iron, to which he glued colorful feathers. He announced his intention to use his heavy feathered frames to jump from the top of the palarctum a 230-foot-tall bell tower of the church in the center of town. Luckily for everyone, but especially for Solomon, he had to get by the pastor first. He tried to reason with Solomon, which seems to have been a difficult thing. Solomon was convinced his wings would work, and nothing could shake him of that opinion. Finally, the pastor zagged. Okay, then, he said, if the wings work, why not start from the ground, then? If you can fly then fly up first. On the street, before the tower, Solomon Idler paused, his wings on his back, considering the challenge. Then abruptly, he turned tail and marched dejectedly back home. He wasn't done. Apparently taking the pastor's words half to heart, he chose a lower perch for his launch, the roof of a small shed overlooking a wooden bridge which was quite prudently, covered in mattresses. He fell immediately upon them, but the bridge itself broke beneath the impact and crashed upon a gaggle of hens that were resting underneath it. Four of the chickens, the Meistersinger told the council, were killed by Solomon's recklessness. German culture might be his next victim if he were allowed to continue with his tacky plays. The council agreed and barred Solomon Idler from the theater. He had only wanted something more for himself, to be an actor, a playwright, a juggler, an antiquarian, or to soar through the skies of Augsburg. One after another, those dreams were dashed as chickens beneath a mattress-stacked footbridge, and after the verdict, Solomon Idler had no choice but to return to his shoemaking. Chapter 19, The Surgeon. It was roughly 1672, and roughly 40 people or so had tried to fly. A good half of those we've already talked about. Of that 40, though, there had been no successes. There were many potential explanations for this disappointing track record. Perhaps flight was impossible, the simplest and among the most popular reasonings motion, the idea that flight was engendered by a vibrational life force contained within a bird's wings that couldn't be mechanically duplicated was still widely regarded too. Plenty of people had identified real difficulties though. Problems with wing size or shape or weight. To most of our flyers, lift was the primary concern. Whether or not they could correctly address it, they could not. But even if they could, lift is just one part of flying and Charles Bernovan was focused on the other. Rust. Bernovan was a reputable surgeon from Grenoble, and the people of Regensburg were lucky he had come there to help ease their suffering. Except that when he showed up, he was less interested in medicine than he was in flying. He told them he had been developing his technique for eight years, and now had it mastered. On January 15th, when the clock in the tower struck 7pm, he would zoom out from within it. The secret to Brnovan's success would be twofold. As opposed to so many of the other air pretenders who built their apparatuses out of cloth or wood and feathers, or, in the case of Solomon Idler, iron and feathers, Charles Brnovan had struck upon the perfect flight fabric, sailcloth, like the ones that caught the wind for ships. The sail would be stretched taut, and Charles would lie flat upon it like a magic carpet, the thing that really set Charles's effort apart from the others, though, was his other skill. Yes, he was an accomplished doctor and apparently knew his way around sheets and sails. Much rarer and more spectacular, however, was his skill with fireworks. A few large examples of which were strapped to his back. As the appointed hour drew near, Charles mounted his sail, which was stretched by rope out over the town square and had his rockets mounted to him. His assistants soaked his clothes with buckets of water to prevent the sparks from lighting him aflame, hopefully. He assured the crowd of thousands below that he had done this before, and it was perfectly safe. He most probably hadn't, and it certainly was not. When the bell rang out seven times, Charles Brnovin yelled for his assistants to strike the fires and light the rockets. According to the Mercure Hollandal de Pan. One of the rockets caught first, or lit faster, or burnt stronger. The sheet tilted, and Charles Brnovan tumbled down the side of it, catching himself Tom Cruise-style by its corner, and hanging there, by hand, over the great drop. The rockets on his back, though, continued to fire as he attempted to climb back up to safety, but he didn't have the strength. His clothing, soaked to keep him from burning, was heavy with water. The heat of the rockets slowly began to dry him out as he dangled above his alarmed audience. If he could just hang on long enough, the water might evaporate and he might be able to vault himself to safety. But unfortunately for the surgeon Charles Brnovan, his rockets produced more smoke than heat, and he asphyxiated more rapidly than he dried out. After a long, agonizing minute, his grip loosened. The Mercure said he was dead before he hit the ground. The Journal de Scavins disagrees, saying he broke his neck on landing. Either way, he didn't suffer for long. Chapter 20 The Locksmith A man climbs a bell tower. He straps wings to his back. He looks out, he jumps, he falls, he splats. Then another comes along, climbs another bell tower, straps a different set of wings to his back, jumps, falls, splats. Another climbs, another jumps, another falls, another splats. Climb, jump, fall, splat. Climb, jump, fall, splat, climb, jump, fall, splat. Climb, jump, fall, splat. It's such a comically macabre pattern. It feels like it needs its own word. Comicab? Macamical? The act is so audacious, so horrific, so galling, so hilarious, and terrible, and tragic, and weird. The first time. But by repetition, the flattening becomes flattened. Like repeating a word until it becomes meaningless. Climb, jump, fall, flat. Climb, jump, fall, flat. Climb, jump, fall, splat. Buffalo, 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 buffalo. The story of Icarus is one of the most iconic myths in the whole of Western history, but by 1678, it had more reboots than Batman. And then came Besnier, the locksmith of Sable. Unfortunately, so little is known of Besnier that he can only give us a slight reprieve. Yet his flying machine, if you can call it that, is probably the most famous image of pre-flight invention besides Leonardo da Vinci's. Besnier breaks the pattern three ways. For a start, he didn't craft a set of wings. What he did craft is far harder to describe, and maybe that's why Besnier is drawn and painted more than he's written about. But podcasting is an audio medium, so describe it I shall. What Besnier built essentially, was a pair of oars, long rods with paddles on the ends. Got that in your mind? Great. Okay, now for the first complication. Basnier's oars had paddles on both ends, front and back, like a kayak. So that's four paddles between them. And he didn't use them to row. Instead, one oar was balanced over each of his shoulders, Presumably they were strapped there via a harness, although this isn't explicitly described. How am I doing? Bessignet's got a harness with rods extending from each shoulder and paddles on both ends. So his shoulders functioned as a fulcrum with the oars seesawing up and down on either side. That seesawing was the key. The back of the left and right oars were tied by a length of rope to Bessignet's respective feet, while he could hold on to their front halves with his arms— So his thinking went, he should be able to fly by making a sort of walking motion. With each weird stride, the oars would rise and fall, and the paddles would push against the air, propelling him upwards, or at least he hoped slowing his fall. It is a particularly bizarre and cumbersome design, and it's hard to imagine that anyone, at any time, could have looked at a guy with a bunch of paddles slung over his shoulders, not to mention tied to his feet, and thought, Yeah, that'll fly. Maybe that's why Besnier broke the second part of the pattern. Rather than climb to the top of a high mountain or a bell tower, Besnier took the advice the pastor had given Solomon Idler. Start from the ground. First, Besnier hopped around the floor. The results were inconclusive. Sure, he didn't fly, but he didn't fall either. He'd have to get a little higher to know for sure. He stood on a chair, and then on a table. Things were still ambiguous. He climbed out a low window, and was pretty sure he felt something. So he moved to a higher one, and then to his roof. Which brings us to the third thing that separates Bestier from so many of his colleagues. The lack of splat. He didn't fly, either. But at least he didn't splat. That was better than most, and different, too. Did his paddles manage to catch just enough air to slow his fall? Maybe. Was his roof not as high as he thought? Possible. Was Bessinier the locksmith just lucky? Very likely. But anyway, you cut it, he walked away from his jump uninjured, believing his weird paddle harness had, at least in part, worked. So he sold his invention to a con man who used them to bilk naive peasants out of their hard earned francs. Nothing is known about what happened to either of them, but we can certainly hope that the charlatan tried his flight from a tower. Chapter 21 The Peasant Two years after Bessinier's mountebank started bilking peasants, one peasant bilked back. A nameless pole in Moscow, he began collecting funds invested by interested parties for the building of a set of mica wings, which he completed in early April of 1680. His crowd of venture capitalists met him upon a rolling hill outside the city where he stood at the top with his mineral wings. On cue, he began to run down the slope, flapping his arms, and when he reached full speed, he hopped, lifting his legs up towards his chest he immediately tumbled onto and across the grassy knoll. His investors were getting restless, but he calmed them, explaining the this or that which had fouled his flight as he walked with skinned knees back to his starting place. He would try again, and this time, things would be different. But they weren't, and before he could get back on his feet again, the mob descended upon him, beating him severely. Chapter 22. The Physicist. Let's end part three a couple years earlier, with one of the few new ideas developed for flight in the 17th century, and one of the few new reasons thought up for why flight was impossible. Both were developed by Francesco Lana de Terzi professor of physics at Prussia, Virtually nothing is known of Terzi, aside from his position, his book and a date of death, which for once is not keyed to an attempt at flight. The book is called Promdromo del Arte Maestra, Terzi's attempt to catalog all of science. Within this impossibly ambitious framework, Terzi compiled a collection of recent inventions, many of which are his own and many of which didn't work. There are a host of perpetual motion machines in the forms of self-winding clocks, water purifiers, earth movers, and overbalanced wheels. There's an impractical sewing machine, a system for delivering messages long distance via cannon, and even a fairly decent attempt at an early tactile writing system for the blind. But it is the airship that tends to get the most attention. In 1631, the city of Magdeburg had been violently sacked in the apex of the Thirty Years' War. It's one of the most devastating civilian events in pre-modern warfare. Roughly 1,700 buildings burnt to the ground, and 25,000 Magdeburgians were killed. That represented about 80% of the city's structures and its population. Magdeburg was practically wiped from the map. It fell to one man to remake it. Otto von Gehrig. Von Gehrig was a brilliant young politician and natural philosopher who had luckily fled the city not long before the Catholic League laid siege to it, but when he returned after the raising, he found that everything he owned had been destroyed. He did everything he could to rebuild his town and his fortune, and after a decade and a half of success, he was elected Burgermeister, sort of a combination mayor-slash-chief-justice. What made von Gehrig such an Efficient political and diplomatic actor was his scientific knowledge, which he used to build inventions that impressed and awed powerful parties into becoming his allies. The chief scientific insight of von Gurek was the idea of space. It was well understood by most people that nature abhors a vacuum, because that is what fucking Aristotle had said, and so there could be no such thing as nothing. But Copernicus seemed to suggest that the planets traveled in their orbits through exactly that, nothing. Von Gerich was fascinated by the ideas of void and vacuum and wanted both to experience them for himself and prove they existed. His first idea was to pump the water out of an otherwise sealed barrel, but the wood of the barrel was too porous and air was pouring inside even as he evacuated the water. What he needed was a water pump, but for air like an air pump. Von Garic's air pump opened up a world of scientific and practical possibilities. With it, he proved that fucking Aristotle was wrong. Nature could abhor all it wanted, but vacuums were real. Once he had a way to remove the air from the inside of a thing, he could do all kinds of cool stuff. He could weigh air, which was a real mindfuck for the 17th century. He made an accurate barometer and invented the world's first electrostatic generator, which we talked about in the episode Shocking. And he could do all kinds of fancy demos for important people to win favor for his beloved Magdeburg. In 1654, he visited the Reichstag to win the favor of the Holy Roman Empire. He brought with him some of his most impressive kit, the Magdeburg hemispheres. The hemispheres were, well, hemispheres, two of them, about 20 inches in diameter and made of copper. One of these sphere halves had a valve on its top, allowing von Guericke to attach his air pump. In front of his esteemed crowd, he put the halves together, closing them into a ball, and then pumped out the air from inside. The force of the air pressure was so strong that the hemispheres were held together. Von Gerick had two horses brought in. One was tied to each hemisphere, and they were made to pull in opposite directions against one another. But even the horses could not break the seal. The air pressure was that strong. This demonstration made a very strong impression. Descriptions of the Magdeburg hemispheres soon flew around Europe. They made their way through Mersenne’s network through Roberval and Denoyer and Thevenon. They reached Robert Boyle, who, with them, built his own air pumps and made incredible insights into the nature of air, and they reached the professor of physics at Brescia, Francesco Lana de Terzi. Francesco's takeaway from the Magdeburg Hemisphere was quite different from Boyle's. He doesn't seem to have been interested in what they said about outer space or chemistry or physics or engineering. He felt that they held the promise of flight. It may sound otherwise, so let me say plainly, Terzi's idea was not ludicrous. It was, in fact, incredibly sensible even though his description and illustration of the flying airship might seem like a flight of fancy. It was very literally an airship, a boat-like hull and keel with a single tall mast for a sail. That sail would be used for propulsion once the ship was airborne, which could be achieved through the copper spheres. There were to be four, said copper spheres, one at the bow, another at the stern, one port, and one starboard. Each was to have a diameter of twenty-four and a half feet and weigh nearly four hundred pounds. But, said Turtsy, when they were pumped empty, they would be lighter than air and lift the ship into the sky. Turtsy's is the first description of the other answer to the flying question, ballooning, and his math is spot on. Because he knew the weight of air, he knew how much his vacuum-sealed copper balls could displace. Hydrogen, helium, and hot air balloons would come down the line, but even hydrogen, the lightest of the elements, is still far heavier than literally nothing. With four gargantuan copper balls entirely emptied, Turtsy figured his ship could lift a payload of nearly 700 pounds. Which... It could have, except for a few issues. The first and most immediate was that the copper spheres as Terzi described them would be impossible for him to build. Nobody had the skills or tools necessary to beat copper nearly as thin as he needed it. This was non-negotiable because if the copper wasn't thin enough, it wasn't light enough. And if it wasn't light enough, it couldn't fly. But that leads us directly into the second issue, the much more profound difficulty. If Tertzi could have made copper globes as thin as he proposed, he'd have soon found out that he couldn't pump the air out of them. Not without causing them to collapse, at least. The same air pressure that kept von Gehrig's hemispheres together even when pulled apart by literal wild horses, fine they probably weren't wild, would crush Hertz's spheres like aluminum cans before they could lift anything. This is why you're used to hot air balloons or helium balloons or even hydrogen balloons if you're 1936 Germany, but not vacuum spheres. There's been some recent research with high-tech materials in complex shapes that might, I stress, might make vacuum airships possible. But I would not hold your breath, that feels dangerously close to a pun. The physical constraints are just too ironic. In order to achieve lift with a vacuum, you need a container dense enough to hold against the air pressure. But in order to make a container dense enough to hold against the air pressure, it needs to be heavier than the vacuum can lift. It's not exactly perpetual motion, but it's pretty close to an O. Henry story. This was not terzi's issue. He figured that the spherical shape of his copper ballasts would stop them from collapsing the way an egg resists being crushed when squeezed uniformly. And it's not clear whether he knew he couldn't get his copper spheres hammered either. Over the course of his entry on his own airship, in his book of all-known science, terzi manages to talk himself out of it. After describing how the ship could ascend, descend, and land, and after he wrongly presumed to have worked out the crushing problem, he came to what he thought to be the real issue. For one, he didn't have any money, but more fascinatingly, he concluded that even if he had the cash and the copper and the vacuums, the airship still wouldn't happen. He wrote... Where is the man who can fail to see that no city would be proof against his surprise, as the ships at any time could be maneuvered over its public squares and houses? Fortresses and cities could thus be destroyed with the certainty that the aerial ship could come to no harm, as iron weights, fireballs, and bombs could be hurled from a great height. Because of its destructive power, its ability to unfairly hurl death, Upon the innocent at will. Francesco Lana de Terzi soberly concluded that God would step in to prevent such a terrible thing ever being built. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound. Title cards by Heather Chrysler. Special thanks go out to everyone who contributes to make this show possible via our Patreon, especially Diane Webb, Christina Eggleston, Jeff Runnels, Chris Thorne, Trules Olson, Justin Zimbaluk, Rachel, Katie Dorsey, Tom Ramsey, Mike Walkish, Hannah Giddings Hamilton, Jerome Janaria, and Kelsey Pine. If you would like to join them, go to patreoncom the Constants to sign up. You can find us at ConstantPodcast.com and from there locate our social media presences if you so desire. Rate and review us where you can, if you can, and most importantly, Prove how much sway you have over your friends by telling them to listen. Then you can subtly quiz them on the latest episode. It'll give you a solid indicator of just where your relationship stands. And that is what we call a life hack. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where, by the grace of God, we will end this thing in part four. This has been The Constant. Okay, there's gonna be a lot of bad pronunciation here, so let's get going.